Hello, and welcome to episode two of our second season of the LCLC podcast. In our first season, I reviewed the storied 50-year history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began way back in 1972 at the University of Louisville. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman. And I decided to start this podcast after I was tapped to be the LCLC's new director in the summer of 2021. The second season exists as an aid for me as I work to ensure that the conference continues to remain relevant in the future for art, both in the short and in the long term. I do so in order to prepare for our upcoming momentous 50th conference slated to take place this February 2023, and looking further ahead, I also plan to engage with artists, writers, critics, and theorists who I see as doing important work expanding the space for art beyond its current precarious location within academia. In this episode, I talk with my colleague, Mark Allen Mattis. Mark is an assistant professor of English at the University of Louisville and a member of the LCLC organizing committee. His edited collection, Handwriting in Early America, a Media History, is forthcoming from University of Massachusetts. And he is also working on a manuscript entitled Archival Apocrypha, the figure of Logan, in Native American and Anglo-American history. For this year's conference, Mark has organized an innovative sequence of three panels entitled American Afterlives 1, 2, and 3. I wanted to have Mark on the podcast so I could learn more. Thanks, Matthew. Um, Yeah, so I've been a member of the LCLC committee for years now, and my training is in 18th and 19th century American studies, and traditionally the LCLC has been a post-1900 literature and culture conference. Um, and it occurred to me that this was an audience that was primed, really, to make connections actually across time uh, between a pre- and post-1900 moment. Um, because my own training was in that area, I had a particular personal investment. But it's also the case that we've been seeing a lot of lovely scholarship uh, in interventions in literary histories chronologies. Um, Cody Mars and Christopher Hager's work uh, on chronologies of American literature called Timelines of American Literature, uh, work in book history and media studies that is trans-historical, uh, working across the 1900 divide, uh, and other just like lovely influences on my own work seem to me also to be a raison d'etre for convening a conversation at a post-1900 conference involving people from, say, the Society of Early Americanists, um, C19, the Society for 19th Century Studies, um, and just a range of people working in earlier fields. Um, Not only do we believe that we have some insights to offer a post-1900 academe and other people involved with the conference, uh, we think we have a lot to learn from a post-1900 moment and the reception of the archives and the texts and the histories that we think we know so well, but probably stand to learn a lot more about. So um, in that spirit of uh, generating a conversation and forging new ground together, um, I put out a call for papers for American Afterlives, uh, whether they were uh, 
contributions to pedagogy that confounds traditional literary histories, uh, close readings of canonical works, uh, lesser known archives and texts, all were welcome. And we had a really wonderful response uh, and have uh, 11 papers lined up for 2023. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about the specifics of the three sessions. As you know, I spend a lot of time unfortunately as conference director having to run around and make sure that you know somebody needs a cable and somebody needs more chairs and i don't get to uh learn as much as i'd like to and that's one of the reasons why i'm doing the podcast so your first session is called transformations and remediations and that's going to be one of our uh, online sessions on monday and there i see that your panelists are going to be talking about Noah Larson. They're going to be talking about uh, Phyllis Wheatley. They're going to be talking about Leslie Marmon Sulko, who uh, was a previous keynote uh, here at the LCLC. Um, that's that's really an impressive slate of writers. How do they all come together in this panel? Sure. So, um, indeed, uh, you know, heavy hitters in the archives of these uh, presenters and exciting just for the top boy in their own right. Um, that being said, I thought that the papers in this uh, in this panel spoke together in terms of the themes of transformation and remediation, in part because of their uh, fluency with interests in uh, material media, and especially the remediation of writing across media. Um, whether it's Larson's paper by Amy Hazel at Regis University, making over writing as sewing in Nella Larson's quicksand. We have the remediation of the category of writing as well as literal, literal writing in the material act of sewing uh, represented in the work. Um, and so, you know, the way that authorship has conceded itself in terms of writing across materialities just made for a really great fit under this rubric of transformations and remediations. As you mentioned, we have a paper on uh, Silco as well as S. Alice Callahan, a late 19th century writer. And uh, their uptake of Legacy of the Ghost Dance. Uh, this paper is written by Emma Butler Probst at the University of Tennessee, and really excited to learn how this embodied performance of the ghost dance itself, a kind of a memorializing and history making ritual as much as anything else, itself becomes transformed over time in its literary representations. Um, and so here you see transformation, but you also see uh, a sense of multimediality, a kind of working together of different media practices, embodied performances, and of course, writing. Uh, the same could be said for um, revisiting uh, the work of Phyllis Fleetley in the recent award-winning Age of Phyllis, a book by Honey Jeffers. Um, Grace Bernadette McGowan at Boston University is gonna be thinking about the transformations of the uptake of the classical tradition in Wheatley and then later Jeffers. Uh, and so you have here a kind of reception history of Wheatley, but you also have a use and a continuity, but also a set of transformations of classical forms in the poetry of the later 21st century work. So um, perhaps not a remediation in the media studies sense, but nonetheless, a remediation of an aesthetic tradition. And the same goes for both an aesthetic tradition and a media tradition in Craig Carey's paper, pages, platforms, and passages, the interactive affordances of early American literature. Put in a nutshell, it's a paper about video games taking up early American narratives and 
remediating them from text to a digital platform and finding the ways those affordances, those digital affordances make newly available interpretations of this early American archive. They work well together. They're about media. They're about transformation. Let's see if they can't have a transforming conversation together. It was a perfect fit. Right, yeah, I'm sure it's gonna be a good one. And that connection between rethinking how we talk about literature and uh, bringing it more into conversation with handicrafts and sewing. I mean, this is something that is a trend that's broader, I think, am I right, uh, than, than just in your subfield. Certainly, I think the mojo that literary studies is getting from engaging with the repercussions of digital media shift has been an absolute boon to literary studies. We're asking very similar questions about affordances. We're asking similar questions about our historicisms and engaging with different representational practices that are allied with certain media forms. Um, and we're also, you know, asking in some ways very traditional transhistorical questions about how we remember, how we create, how we make art with these new material practices at our disposal. And what is retained of the old, right? Um, things don't supersede each other, right? They they work with each other productively, interactively over time. And you know whether that's sewing and writing or uh, printing and video games, um, that interactivity continues. And so while these are all you know about the uptake of 18th and 19th century works or 19th century practices, in the case of the ghost dance, it's nonetheless the case that these are, you know germane 21st century questions in terms of our own relation to the media by which we access these works. Right. Yeah, um, I know that we've benefited from a lot of this work uh, that's done by our colleague Deborah Lutz, who's been interested in these connections in Victorian times and in relation to British literature and rethinking canonical authors like Austin and the the Brontes and uh, things like that. So what's fascinating for me is thinking about not not realizing that that isn't just the kind of Eurocentric uh, connection to make, but that you see it crossing over here into American studies and into Native American and ethnic studies as well. That's right. Um... Thinking multimedially, thinking about media shift, gets us out of uh, thinking of writing as simply like the bludgeoning cudgel of the colonizer, um, but allows us to think of the many different material practices by which people record and express themselves uh, in a range of communities, uh, Eurocentric and beyond. Um, it's also the case that um, uh, 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 expressive practices of a Eurocentric tradition can be adapted and transformed by different cultures uh, to ends that are not simply a reiteration of the colonizers' terms, but actually remade for the needs of the people and their futures. So, you know, when we think about the uptake of Eurocentric alphabetic liter literacy practices and writing in Silco, we're not talking about the reiteration, right, of the colonizers' tools or the reinscription of the colonizers' terms. We're talking about a wholesale transformation of the expressive possibilities of those technologies. In this case, for the future of, of, of the communities for whom they're written, 
and those are not reducible to Anglo-Americans, right? Uh, so what a great, uh, what a great panel uh, in, in working not just uh, across early American texts, but really early texts that are not reducible to the category of American and nonetheless are allied. I think it's gonna be great. And that segues really nicely. I, I see the logic now with your second panel, uh, which you've titled American Afterlives to Aesthetics, because that's where we've ended uh, our conversation so far is thinking about uh, how these things work when you uh, contextualize them within uh, the philosophical conversation of aesthetics. And immediately the word the sublime jumps out in uh, Benjamin Johnson's presentation that's going to kick off that panel. And then you've got, it, it's really wild to realize that then we go from uh, from what we're talking about uh, in terms of Native American practices and things like that, back into of all of all uh, old spirits, Longfellow, and then uh, into Whitman. So, am I right in in seeing that the second panel um, goes in this direction of thinking, uh, rethinking how aesthetics is going to work? Yeah, or if not rethinking how it's going to work, uh, you know, rethinking the ways that we can make claims about how, about how they have and continue to work. So I'm immediately drawn to Eric Maybe's paper, uh, a student here at the University of Louisville, who has a paper entitled Leaves of Grass as Contemporary Artist's Book. And he's literally doing a close reading of an artist's book that's inspired by Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And his transcendentalist, you know, American Renaissance aesthetic, his concerns with the merge of the I and the you, his finding an aesthetic of e pluribus unum, um, really uh, is a profound influence on the craft work of a book artist that he's going to be talking about. And I've had a chance actually to see this Leaves of Grass artist's book firsthand. And it is absolutely in its material and visual construction, in its literal book binding, indebted to the transform transformational uh, poetics uh, of Whitman himself. It is the material articulation of the I and the you in productive tension and in merge in Leaves of Grass. Um, it's also the case that there's another tradition being taken up, another aesthetic tradition beyond that of his poetics, uh, which is that Leaves of Grass was like an artist book itself, in part under the control of Whitman. He had a hand designing many of the editions of his books. He also took the idea of bookmaking and its attendant practices and technologies as a range of motifs that recur across his poems in Leaves of Grass. And so all these facets of his material media practices and his, we'll call it linguistic poetics, are in full display in this artist books in this artist book, according to Eric Maybe, and I'm excited to learn more. So I wouldn't say it's a transformation of an aesthetic, but more like um, transformation of the way that we deploy an aesthetic. Um, that's really at the heart uh, of this panel. Uh, again, you know, I'm 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 in the 18th and 19th century, so when I think sublime, um, I think Thomas Jefferson. I think this moment of shift from enlightenment to romantic, romantic sublime and him struggling um, with questions of knowledge and warrants and epistemology 
uh, in these moments and in, 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 in relating these uh, anxieties about knowing through these affective experiences of the sublime and his notes in the state of Virginia. Um, I know that Benjamin Johnson's working with the romantics, so we might say something similar about, say, Coleridge. Um, but nonetheless, these affective articulations of what we can and cannot know are as pertinent to are as pertinent to the poetries of the 20th and 21st century as they are to the 18th and 19th centuries. So, is it transformational the use of the sublime, or is the sublime re reimagined in the poetry of Diane Seuss and Tiana Clark? Well, maybe that's for Johnson to say, right, in his paper. But I suspect that it's going to be as many continuities as there are changes. Uh, and I look forward to learning those as an 18th centuryist who is certainly not a 21st centuryist. So I have a lot to learn. The same could be said for Joel Callahan. And you mentioned, you know, how interesting that we're going from uh, Native American literature to the legacy of Longfellow. And so I am just as interested in the legacies of his representational practices and how those aesthetics of those representational practices either uh, you know, situate, call, bring forward, and also in some ways erase indigenous figures. As we know, Longfellow's Hiawatha is canon. Um, what poems Callahan will actually be reading and thinking through in terms of their uptake in American modernism though, remains to be seen. So I wait with bated breath. In the last paper, David Anthony's Molnieu, Charlottesville, and the Jew, we see another uh, moment of becoming and othering, uh, like the becoming and sort of othering of the uh, Unabomber, as well as the megalomania of Ahab in Melville's work. Uh, we have a becoming, that is the production of a trope of the Jew in Hawthorne, and an othering, that is, right, a kind of producing of a social other uh, in American Jewish life by their oppressors, by an Anglo-American literary tradition, um, and how that production of a caricature and a production of a trope uh, together have a long-lasting legacy, like the recent violence in Charlottesville involving the Black Lives Matter protesters and their provocateurs. Right, in the, I believe it was called the Unite the Right rally, uh, that took place where they chanted, the Jews will not replace us. Exactly. So I think that's a really great way to end the stream, is really bringing the social significance and power of literary imagination, of discourse production in this earlier moment, uh, and making it visible in its resonance and its contemporary significance in the 21st century. Um, and so what a great capstone to all the panels. And to bring it all the way around, your own contribution to that panel um, takes us into thinking about the questions that we open with uh, in the ways in which textual and material uh, practices extend in surprising ways into, in your case, even the natural world and trees and a particular tree, the Logan Elm. Can you remind me a little bit about what your argument is there? Sure, so um, it's really a paper about uh, native futurity in remembering native ancestors. Uh, the particular text that I'm working with 
is Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, and particularly his story of Logan, a Cayuga Native American, also known in his Cayuga name, Soyectoa. Uh, for Jefferson, Logan uh, gets figured as a figure of vanishing, uh, as a noble savage, as a datum of enlightenment nature, um, as uh, a figure who does not speak for himself, but only speaks to his inevitable disappearance. Uh, settler tropes abound in these representations. Um, the history of Logan, at least most histories of Logan in the 19th and 20th centuries have been in hawk to this Jeffersonian vision of Logan's significance, um, including settlers in Ohio who apocryphally claimed that a particular elm tree was a tree under which Logan gave a famous speech known as Logan's Laments, where he uh, laments and mourns the murder of his kin at the hands of white soldiers in the 18th century. Um, whether or not this is the actual place is besides the point, um, because in remembering Logan, it's not simply settler historical societies, aficionados, amateur historians, uh, novelists, and a range of other Anglo-Americans who remember Logan in part through this tree that they apocryphally claim to be the site of this oration. It also becomes, in the 19th century, a place where Native Americans, including Logan's own ancestors through his brother's line, come to remember Logan in their own way or articulate memories that were generated far before the so-called founding of the Logan Elm. And so the paper is essentially a reception history of Logan's story by a range of indigenous people over the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries centered on the reflections on the Logan Elm. So I did some interviews with Logan's, or sorry, Logan's descendants um, who reside in the Cayuga, uh, uh, Seneca Cayuga Nation in Oklahoma. Um, I did uh, some work with uh, cultural knowledge keepers uh, in the settler tradition in central Ohio who actually caretake the land upon which the Logan Elm stood um, and learned that the relevance of these stories is not just about their continuity from the 18th to the 21st century, but also how the memories of Logan, especially indigenous memories of Logan involving this tree, have always looked towards the future. Not the future of our now, but futures to come. And so the story of Logan is not bound up then in disappearing and vanishing and speaking to one's people's inevitable disappearance in a range of settler tropes, but is actually about articulating a future for the people. And I wanted to um, shed, if not shed light, uh, amplify the voices that have already been saying that for hundreds of years. Yeah, that's a great uh, summary of, of your paper. And I really appreciate you taking the time to walk me through it and share that that sort of reversal and that optimistic vision um, that you're uh, wanting to mobilize um, in solidarity with uh, Logan's descendants. Um, and similarly, I hope that this isn't uh, a one-off for you and the other uh, early Americanists that are participating in our conference. I hope that this is a start with a future um, where we can continue to have these discussions, uh, not just this February, but hopefully in uh, February 2024 and onward. Absolutely, Matthew. Uh, you know, thanks for teasing that. I really envision the American Afterlives stream to be a, a new tradition, starting with the 50th anniversary of the LCLC 
um, it seems like a, a great time to start uh, something new and, you know, engendering this correspondence across our respective subfields. What better place and time? I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Mark Allen Mattis. If you have, consider hitting like, subscribing, and telling a friend or writing a review of the podcast. And as always, I invite you to join us for an upcoming conference. Consult the Louisville.com for details or reach out directly to me, Matthew Biberman, Conference Director. Thanks again for listening.